How's it, Luke? Hello, Corin. How's life? Good, good. We're discussing some quite uh, difficult content here, but Indeed. I think it's so important. And as you said early, earlier, wouldn't it be fantastic if uh, parents could have these conversations with their children? Well, I think the biggest challenge we have faced sort of historically is, you know, parents of, of our age, sort of people in their 40s and 50s who have children who are of the age where these problems are emerging, we grew up in a nationalist government with an immorality act. No one spoke about sex. You know, so the, the parents were never given a, a language or a mm. script. So I think, you know, what we're trying to do is assist with the script so that people have a way to think. And when children have a way to think, they can make better decisions. Absolutely. So this is part three of Eye on the Child. And as we mentioned in part one and two, Eye on the Child is one of Luke's most popular talks that he's doing at schools at the moment. The talks are for parents, they are for educators, and they are for learners as well. And as we said earlier, it's really about giving children and parents and educators the language. Um, giving them the signs that aha moment when they actually have noticed it all along, but they never quite had the tools to come out and say what was happening or what process to follow. So part three of Eye on the Child, we are discussing criminal capacity and the Child Justice Act. So these are two very important topics that we are going to be discussing. And as with all of our podcasts, we really encourage you to engage with us. So if there's something that's unclear, something that you'd like to know more information on, drop us an email. All of our details are on our Facebook page, Society Superheroes. We'd really love to hear from you. Or alternately, comment on our posts, comment on our podcasts that we put up on our Facebook page. Absolutely. So just to paint a context for capacity and get the sort of the, the easy ones out the way first, is that capacity is your ability to understand what you did was wrong, your ability to understand the consequences of that wrongfulness, and also your ability to act in accordance with it. So for example, people you will hear about People who were psychotic, so there was a very famous case in Cresta where a young girl um, stood up, she was having lunch with her father, she had been released from a mental health institution, and she got up and she slit the throat of an uh, old lady walking past Woolworths. Now, she's psychotic. Mm. Now, a person like that, she heard voices in the um, public address system of mm. Cresta telling her to do it. I mean, clearly that person doesn't have criminal capacity. And the criminal justice system and the Criminal Procedures Act has a very specific way of managing um, people like that. We had a young man who we also sent there um, to Stirkventine in particular because although they don't have capacity, they are still dangerous. Mm. But the way we treat them is different. It's so different. That's, that, that's capacity from a mental health perspective. The second one to understand, which is a complex one, which we'll deal with in quite a bit of detail in the talk going forward, is the capacity to understand wrongfulness while intoxicated. Mm. So if you take an example of somebody who's driving drunk. Mm. Now, the fact that you drive drunk, the fact that you're drunk does not mean you had less capacity to um, make a decision because the fact that you got in the car is the reason you are arrested mm. because you knew that you had to drink and then you had to get in the car and mm. then you get in a car is going to result in you driving under the influence. Now, if you then kill somebody while you are driving drunk, it is not a mitigating circumstance. Mm. So what people must understand when we get to young people and drinking and marijuana and vaping, whatever, your intoxication 
impairs your ability to consent to something, but not your capacity to be held accountable for what you did wrong. The last one to understand around capacity, which I'd mentioned with consent as well, is you also have temporary, um, you have temporary in inabilities to consent. Mania in bipolar being one of the big ones, where people go and withdraw all the money from their bank accounts, go and gamble it away, or whatever the case is. Uh, you know, a floridly manic person can't really consent mm -hmm. to things. So there, there are limitations to consent. And they relate to capacity when we get to children. So the two overlap, but they are not the same. Not the same. So we're going to discuss um, a, a post that I saw on Facebook. And as a mother, it, it made my blood boil. And I want to go out on behalf of that mother and take action. Um, the comments that followed were, were very interesting. Everybody was outraged, but what the right thing to do was. So basically the story was um, a boy child at the beginning of his grade down year, um, his friend left the school, was a very sco a small school environment, and he became friends with um, the other boys in the class. As I said, it was a very, very, or it is a very, very small school. Because mothers, I think, tend to have an intuition, um, the mother wasn't very happy with, with the boys that he was friends with, didn't really consider them to be good friends, but they were the only sort of friends. There wasn't much choice. Grade 10 comes along, and the teacher said something, and this boy smiled at what the teacher had said. He found it humorous or whatever it was. According to his so-called friends, um, this was not acceptable. You do not smile when the teacher says something funny, not allowed. At break time, they then proceeded to beat him on the head with closed fists. All of the boys took turns to hit him on the head with their closed fists. Now, this had been escalating behavior. A child had done the same. Another boy in the class had also smiled. It's something the teacher had said. Clearly, smiling is not accepted by this um, mob of boys. And they had hit him with open hands. The behavior had then escalated to actual fists. The child had had to be kept home from school the next day. Um, he was bruised. He had very bad headaches. And the mother was sort of saying he had begged her. And I think children most often in these situations, they'll never say, mom, dad, caregiver, please go and sort this out. He begged his mother, please don't go to the principal and discuss this. Now, me as a mother, firstly, I don't think it's bullying. I think it's assault. And secondly, I wouldn't go to the principal. I'd go straight to the police. 100%. So th there's a lot of very interesting components mm -hmm. to your um, your case study. And if we go back to the first podcast on the levels of denial, uh, minimization seems to have been sort of the primary denial here. And I suppose them sort of denying responsibility because he caused them to beat him because this is the tradition. I hear this a lot in these these schools. This is the tradition. So if you do this, you know what the consequences are. But it's sort of this like secret society tradition story. So the big thing to consider here is firstly, they would um, have it set up as something in the school that is a subculture, which is some kind of traditional ritual that they will perform. If you do X like smile, you will get beaten. And each generation that, that I see working with, so I'll go back many generations and people say, well, this was a tradition. And when I see it now, a decade later, it's like broken telephone and it's always more severe. 
It's like the, the generation that it is done to has to make it worse because they need to be seen as bigger and tougher or whatever. You know, kind of the, the, the people who follow them have to endure more than they did or whatever. So it's always this one-upmanship mm -hmm. kind of thing, in these, particularly in these sort of competitive environments. Now, the, the continuum of what you're talking about when you said this is not bullying or it's not a tradition is very important because you cannot have traditions which are against the law. Mm. I mean, any cultural tradition. So, for example, if you look at that cause uh, initiation uh, rituals, a lot of my boys from the gym have been on them, and they've been very good. But you can also go with boys' penises are cut off, you mm. know, in these illegal… Um, well, they develop um, complications. Um, or they develop Infections and, and things like that, which have massive impacts. Massive impacts. So… You must understand that the, the, no matter what the tradition is, so like the one school I was at recently, they said that they can endure lashes because lashes is part of tradition. It's illegal to hit people in a school context, and now it's illegal to hit your children at home as well, but it's illegal. So you can't agree to be lashed, and you can't agree in the tradition to lash people. So in terms of capacity, there is no defense that this is because this was done to me or because this was a tradition or because this is how things worked at that time, that that is a defense. You are responsible for your behavior. Okay, so that's like initiations at school. Now, this thing where they slap the previous boy and beat this boy, they will say that's us imposing discipline or whatever. But it's not bullying and it's not discipline and it's not tr tradition. And you labeled it as assault. And because it's boys in a group hitting a young person with closed fists on the head, it would be assault GBH. So assault is a continuum as well. So generally assault common is the fight you see in the pub. People punch each other or whatever, slap each other. Then you get assault GBH, which is generally sort of with instruments, but sort of pounding someone in the head mm. is assault GBH. And you've got attempted murder and then you've got murder. Mm. So if you think of the other example we, we spoke about where it was clearly labeled not as this tradition but as bullying was the case where a young girl and another girl, well, two young girls, had been having some issues online. Um, the, the tougher of the two set up to beat her the next day. The bad part is she beat her. The second bad part is people were cheering her on. The third bad part is they were videoing her, beating her, and so on. And then that one young girl went home and killed herself, and the other young girl then ended up being charged with, I think, assault GBH and ultimately murder. Now, if they had have intervened with your case or with this case or with the cases of the initiations at school and they had have evoked the Child Justice Act, we would have been able to help the people who are hurting mm. the other people. Because we focus in this bullying. Bullying, I don't even use the word anymore because it's like lost meaning. Mm. You know, it really has lost meaning. Lost it's a case meaning. of, oh, bullying, yawn, let's move swiftly along. Well, I mean, I get young people refer to me, oh, I've been bullied, and I'll say, what happened? Now I got bumped off the soccer ball while I was playing soccer. I said, that's not bullying, that's no. soccer. You know? mm. Then I get other ones where they've been beating the head, where they've got a bleeding brain, and they're at the Joburg Gen, and they've been bullied. I mean, that's not bullying. I mean, no. that's attempted murder, mm. you know, if you've got bleeding on the brain. So what people have done is, as I said in the first podcast, is the defense is minimization. Mm. Now, the first one we spoke in the first podcast, it was about sexual abuse. This is physical. Mm. And as a society, because of the high levels of violence, we minimize physical abuse much more. 
And because uh, teachers are saying, we're not allowed to hit children anymore, we used to. I got caned, I turned out okay. I said to him, must be sure you turned out okay, because I'm not so sure you turned out okay, <laughs> but whatever. And that is minimization. And that is minimization. And what happens is the, the, the idea of, particularly for boys, the idea that masculinity is performative, you have to endure something. And generally, it's endurance of something physical with mm. basic pain. training in the army, pain, physicality, um, PT training, etc. So, the thing that should happen and should have happened in the case of the child who committed suicide and your case is there should have been an assault charge laid. Mm. Whether it's assault common or assault GBH or whatever is up to the prosecutor to decide. It's not your job. And remember, you are not making a case. You're not laying a charge. What you're doing is making a statement in terms of the law so that the law can investigate what should happen. Okay, that's what you're doing. So the, the the police open the case and the prosecutor decides whether to charge somebody. You don't decide mm. that. You are asking for them to investigate it. Okay. And, and I think that's quite important because immediately it's a case of, well, I'm going to go and lay a charge at the police station. Sure. So I think that's a very important distinction. And if we get back to that case, do you start with the principal or do you start with the police? Okay. So you do the two simultaneously. Okay. So you must remember there are two processes. The one is a disciplinary, which depending on the nature of your school is either an SGB or a GDE. I mean, if you're wanting to expel people, it's got to go to the MEC. So there's various, mm. but they're internal processes about your place in that community. Whether it's a teacher hitting a child or another child hitting a child, there's a formal disciplinary process which is governed by law. If it's a teacher, it's governed by labor law. So you want to see what to do with the young people in that context. Okay, and then the police see what to do with that person criminally. Mm -hmm. So they they happen simultaneously. You do both at the same time. Okay, what is the um, duty of the principal? So if I'm the parent and I haven't been to the police, so I don't know how things work. Which, let's be honest, most of us don't know how things work. We don't know where to start. So I go to the principal and I explain to the principal what has happened. What is the duty of that principal? So you must remember the first duty of professionals in terms of protecting children falls under Section 110 of the Children's Act. Sexual abuse also falls under Section 54 of the Sexual Offences Act and is a much higher bar. But what must happen from, a, from the principal's perspective when you define something as physically abusive. So physical abuse, deliberate neglect and sexual abuse or mandatory reporting clauses. Okay, You have to fill out a Form 22, you have to inform a social work agency because those boys, which we'll get to now, those boys who did the assaulting need services, mm. not jail. Mm. Okay, And that's which restorative justice. That's which, restorative justice. And, and our next podcast will be on discipline and dignity. Yeah. So that's something I know that you are very passionate mm. about. Um, we'll sort of give a brief intro at the end of this podcast. To that one. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So the most important thing is that we must understand, and this is what, and I mean, you know, I'm quoting really controversial people, but when Charles Manson um, was convicted and he was going to be sentenced, they said to him, do you have anything to say? He says, indeed I do. He says, these children who come at, come at you with guns and knives, I didn't raise them, you did. Mm. You know, if you're looking for me to make the monster, <laughs> look more inwardly. Because we raise these children that think it's okay to have a ritual where you beat someone in the head with closed fist. We did that. 
That, that didn't come out of them as some kind of natural instinct. They learned that from somewhere. Okay. Mm. Now, as adults, we need to recognize the, the brain grows from back to front. So back is your, what you call your primitive brain or reptilian brain or old brain, whatever you want to call it. And that's where your impulses come from. Your front brain, which is your prefrontal cortex, only develops by the time you're about 25. And that's what switches off the impulse. So boys in particular are very impulsive. Mm. So they do things, they do things in groups they wouldn't do on their own. You know, it's that herd mentality, etc. And what we have to do is we have to remember we need to help them restore. So restorative justice is like the TRC, so the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was a big restorative justice component. And what we want to do is we want to restore that child to themselves first. So remember, if you've got someone who thinks when you do something wrong, it's okay to beat you, they're going to beat their wife, they're going to beat mm. their children, mm. they're going to beat their, they're going to beat a person in the bar, they're going to beat their, their friends, dog. their dog, whatever the case is. Because they haven't, their development hasn't been restored to themselves. So violence, if we look at Will Smith and the debacle around Will Smith, that's an example of socially the socially sanctioned deviance of so-called tradition. You know, he's defending his wife, you know. Um, I'm defending the teacher or defending the cool group or whatever. It shouldn't resort to violence. So the first thing is to restore them to themselves, to not use violence as the way to solve things. A whole society does. Putin does. Biden does. You know, the whole world uses violence as a, as a way to do things. But we have to help them not do that. The second way possible is they need to be restored to the person they harmed. It's not always possible. For example, I've got lots of cases of sexual assault at the moment where young boys are sexually assaulting girls, which I will get to when we conclude this particular podcast. And it doesn't generally go very well if you've got a sex offender sitting with a victim trying no. to do some restorative meeting. But if you've got these five boys who say, sit with this boy and say, I'm really sorry, you know, and try to restore their relationship with him, not to be his friend, but no, to sure. say, I did wrong, mm. you did nothing wrong, we are very sorry, and we won't do it again. Okay, so that's the kind of mm. restoring to the person. Then you want to restore them to their community. Now, this is a very important component because the community is the school and society. So the restorative component with the school is that the schools need to think more in terms of restoration, therapy, anger management, violence, conflict resolution, and those as interventions for young people who transgress like these boys did, rather than expelling them. Because all you do is you just create a drama and you send them somewhere else, you know. And for society, what the law, the Child Justice Act has done is they've said we want to restore you to be a law-abiding citizen by the time you turn 18. So they schedule the crimes. You get Schedule 1, 2, 3. Schedule 1 is, say, shoplifting. Schedule 2 is, say, common assault. Schedule 3 is um, murder. Now, if you are 14 and older, you are assumed to have criminal capacity. And if you commit a Schedule 3 offense, murder, hijacking, aggravated robbery, etc., you can go to jail. It's jail, jail. Mm. It's just on a separate... Uh, section of the jail and when you become an adult they transfer you mm -hmm. to the adult jail so we've got 15 year olds serving 35 year sentences mm -hmm. you know at the local at Depslet for the other offences you have diversions mm -hmm. 
So they divert you away from the criminal justice system into registered programs. And that's what people listening must understand. It's not going to your local therapist. No, 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 no. It's got to be a registered diversion program. Correct. And those are very specific. And they are rare. So you've got to mm. look for them. And what happens is you must understand that a diversion is an outcome of a criminal process by the prosecutor. It is not an alternative to it. Mm. That's the big difference. Okay. And what happens is if you go that route there is what we call an external locus of control. If you do not comply, you're coming back to court. Mm. Instead of like, okay, well, go do this um, go do this thing, and then there's no way to enforce it. Okay, Or you can do what's called a conversion. Now, a conversion changes the case from a criminal case to a children's court inquiry, where the child is seen as out of control and potentially in need of care. So they go to the children's court and in the children's court they can order all kinds of things mm. under Section 46 of the, the Children's Act or they can remove children under Section 150 and place them in care because they can't be controlled. But all of it is meant to be developmental for children. Mm. None of it is meant to be punitive unless the severity of the crime determines that. And like I said, those are things like murder, hijacking, mm -hmm. gang rapes, aggravated house robberies. You know, they're really serious offences. And at 14, you have capacity. Now, the fact that so you your capacity is at 14? At 14, criminal capacity. If you were drunk, you still have capacity. Okay. If you were high, you still have capacity. Mm -hmm. So it, although it limits your ability to consent, as per the previous podcast, it doesn't impair your capacity. Okay, mm -hmm. mental, mental illness does. So let's look at a very tragic case that was um, made news headlines not, not too long ago. It's been this year where um, a learner went to a club. I think he was 17 um, and he had an altercation in the club, was leaving the club to phone his mother to come and fetch him. She was on her way. The brother of the person he'd had the altercation with, please correct me if I'm wrong, um, had left the venue and came back and stabbed the this young person to death. What's going to happen to that child? Ms. Well, Linda? he's a child. Was he a child? No, How not old? A child. He's not a child. He was 18. Yeah. Okay. So he was arrested. He's okay. going to be processed for culpable homicide, murder, etc. So he's 18. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he's still in matric is not relevant. Um, the way they work it in terms of the ages is if you – so if you are under the age of 12, you have no criminal capacity. So you, there cannot be a criminal outcome to what you did. So I had two boys referred to us. One was seven, one was nine, and they murdered an eight-year-old boy. They drowned him in a landfill. Good grief. So they couldn't be prosecuted, and they sent the child for diversion. You can't divert children because they don't have criminal capacity. So we had to convert that case to send it to children's court because how did those two boys end up murdering somebody what's happening at home so the children's court looked into it if it's a lesser offense like um, children beating each other or some of the sexual stuff that we see um, in under 12 children what happens is that they they get interventions in terms of section 9 of the act okay so it's, it's a whole lot of therapies and assessments and much like section 46 of the the children's act and then children 12 and 13 they are assumed to not have criminal capacity, and if the state wants to prosecute them, they need the state needs to prove they have capacity. Okay, otherwise, if you are say 15, like I had a, in fact, it was a 17 year old. I had a 17 year old who was accused of a sexual offence, but he was in a children's home and severely intellectually impaired. We had to prove to the court that he's intellectually impaired 
so that he doesn't get prosecuted. So the onus and the burden of proof shifts mm. depending on, because there are issues where somebody is 15, but they're not actually 15, but then we have to prove it. And we had cases, I think I've had about five in my whole career because of the profile of them, where boys were 12 committed a serious offence and the state wanted to prosecute, but the state then has to prove they have criminal capacity. So that's 12 and 13-year-olds. The day you turn 18, if any of that applies, like you have limited capacity, it's in terms of the Criminal Procedures Act that I said right at the beginning with disability, um, mental illness, psychosis, etc. But it's a totally different process. The day you turn 18, the Child Justice Act is not available to you as a way to interact with the criminal justice system. So what happened to the seven and nine-year-old? Oh, they went to children's court and they were placed in a child and youth care center because the parents weren't complying with the therapies, they wouldn't bring them, etc., etc. So they ended up in care. And will they be ever be able to be functioning members of society? Well, that is the whole aim of restorative justice because of the and they were they were prepubertal. So we believe if we can intervene early, we can change any mm. child. That's why we do what we do. Adults less so. Adults you learn to manage rather than change. Mm. So last point before before we end off. I don't know if you've seen the case. Um, it, it really has disturbed me quite a lot is the Antwerp. Have I did you seen read that? about it, the child slave story. Yes. Mm. So here are two celebrities mm. who saw a child, and obviously the circumstances that the child came from very poor background, they arranged private foster care, so they fostered this little boy um, because of the way he looked, um, and they enhanced those looks. Um, Strange-looking little boy. I mean, it's you know you can't really say anything differently. Um, and apart from things like drawing blood from him and uh, from a private lab for rituals, he, you know he went on to stab his brother. And put his brother in hospital. So there were acts of violence. But from a very young age, he was coached not only to say very appropriate, inappropriate things, but but also to make threats against people from from where he'd come from. Um, they they um, minimized once again the people from from his community in terms of being very very poor. Um, obviously, there's no comment from them, but. What has happened to this little boy? There, there, there are allegations of, of sexual abuse in terms of stripping down naked, being in saunas, um, being in the sauna with friends. Um, the, his younger sister is still in their care, which is quite frightening. Are they liable for the fact he stabbed his brother? Yes. So w we would look at the age again and the nature of the offence. So I had a, a, a young man come to me who had, um, he had shot his friend, so he was seven. And it was, it was one of those really disturbing cases, like an M. Scott, Scott Peck, people of the lie kind of case, where this young guy who came to see me, the seven-year-old, his dad shot himself. And the mother kept the gun the dad shot himself with as a souvenir and kept the gun in a suitcase under the bed. Good Lord. The boy found the gun. And uh, they were playing cops and robbers or whatever. They were playing. Said to his friend, look, this is our gun. Works. And bang, bang, and shot his friend dead in the chest. They charged the mother. Correct, because she should have had the gun locked away in a safe and the keys, obviously no, no access to the keys. Correct. 
Now, the problem is, is once children become over 14, they suddenly have their own criminal capacity. Mm. So they would look at the, the nature of the crime. They'd look at the age. But that child, in terms of the being found in need of care and needing care other than being in the care of the unfurts care, would be the children's court inquiry. Mm. Okay. Look, he's 20 now. Okay. So, so the answer would be no. Yeah. So the minute you develop – so. If you look at most... But he stabbed his brother, from what I understand, when he was much, much younger. So would that then all depend on what age he was when he stabbed his brother? The the age is everything. Because remember, capacity, like consent, has a set of age categories. Mm. And then if there are exceptions to the age categories, there are disability, mental illness. In the case of consent, intoxication, capacity, not intoxication. But your your environment is always a mitigating circumstance Mm. for what you did. And the fact that he stabbed his brother um, and he's come out now as a 20-year-old, and, and we see this often, and I think very often people can't understand it. You know, why do victims of abuse speak out when, when they're 40? That's a whole nother discussion. But he's now spoken out as a 20-year-old in terms of what he's endured. He spoke very candidly about stabbing his brother. Does that prescribe? So not no. sexually, we'll we'll talk about that's a whole nother um, another topic of discussion but can they be held liable um even though it happened uh, some time ago you must remember most common law offenses things like sexual assault murder etc attempted murder they don't prescribe okay. you know and and the ones that did with certain sexual offenses changes like after 20 25 mm. years i mean they you know these are and they're common law crimes so they don't prescribe whereas the statutory crimes common law is just not written in law it's things we assume don't murder people don't rape people you know rapes now also a statutory offense but those that that and murder for example doesn't prescribe mm. attempted murder i would think not but if it does 20 to 25 years Mm. Okay, so I just want to conclude with yes, that's a bit long. I want to conclude with one final thought for those listening, is that people must go back to the second podcast and think about consent. I'm seeing an enormous number of young men who are referred to me for sexually assaulting girls particularly coming out of lockdown. They've gone out, they've gone to parties, they've been drinking, they've given the girls drink, they've been smoking marijuana, they've been taking drugs, they've been vaping, they've been doing all kinds of things. And then they have sex with these girls. And I guess to certain levels of sex, for example, oral sex where these boys have a pornographic script, they see it is very exciting to hold girls' heads, and then the girls have obviously got penises in their mouths, and these girls are struggling, but that's what the porn script looks like. It's all kind of, there's no, there's no consent negotiating pornography. It looks like they, they, they're struggling and the boys are holding their heads and now they can't say no. And then they charge. Remember, that's rape. Mm. Because any penetration sexually is rape. Mm. So these boys of 15 are getting charged with child rape mm. because of the porn script, alcohol, and the inability to negotiate consent. And that is a serious crime to be charged with. So have discussions with your children, not just about consent, but about capacity and the ability to be held liable, not liable, it's not the right, to to be held criminally responsible for your behavior. Including oral sex. Oral sex, digital sex, um, uh, sex with tongues, any form of penetration is rape. Okay. Okay. And if you are not entirely sure of consent from one level to another and, and, and you haven't negotiated things, the problem with the pornographic script and consent is it's never negotiated in porn script and there's a level of male dominance and violence mm. associated with that script almost by default. And it is causing 
endless chaos. Mm. So the lack of sex education, which we'll do in another podcast, is leading to boys being charged with rape of a child. It will change your whole life. We'll change it forever. That was part three of our three-part R on the Child podcast series. Part one was on the four preconditions for child abuse to occur, the grooming process and psychological defenses, which provide barriers to reporting. The second part was on consent. And this third part has been on criminal capacity and child justice. Our next podcast is on discipline um, discipline with dignity, something that Luke is exceptionally passionate about. And if there's anything specifically you'd like to know about discipline, I know that there is a Concord case at the moment with two teachers. Anything we'd like to know about discipline, um, please reach out to us and we'll ensure that we do talk about it. This is Society's School Superheroes. Thank you ever so much for listening. Thanks very much, as always, for an engaging, thought-provoking conversation, particularly the case that is Corin. So look forward to engaging with you all online. Check us on the socials and have a lack of day further. Bye-bye.